You know, one of the biggest, best, most pleasant surprise movies for me of the last decade was Kingsman. Kingsman was this, one of these films that came out of absolutely nowhere based on this little known, at least in the in the wider pop culture, little known graphic novel story. Uh, Matthew Vaughn directed it, and I, I really do love Matthew Vaughn. And he did Kingsman fantastic. One of my bigger disappointments in the movie theaters in the last 10 years was its follow-up film, Kingsman, the Golden Circle. I really didn't like that movie. And and I've gone back and tried to watch it a couple more times. And every time I watch it, I seem to get more and more disappointed with it. So whatever. We do, of course, have another Kingsman movie on the way. But this story has come out. The production company behind it, Marv, is now saying that they have around seven more Kingsman films that they've got planned. Seven. If that number sounds familiar, it's pretty close to what uh, Saban, however you say Saban, said was the number of Power Rangers movies they were going to do before that last Power Rangers movie came out. And we all saw how that turned out. Uh, this is basically what, what they're saying. They're saying we've basically got something like seven more Kingsman films in the plans. They also talk about how they have a Kingsman TV series in the works. We have a Kingsman TV series in the works, and there are two or three other franchises that are connected to the Kingsman universe. So they're actually looking at creating this entire shared Kingsman shared cinematic universe. <clears throat> I am of mixed feelings on this right now, because like I said, the first Kingsman movie to me, absolutely fantastic. Like I love it. It's a joy. Every time I go back and watch it, it's just revitalizes that pure joy. It's got everything you want. It's got great humor, visceral violence, alongside of just really fun kind of action stuff. It's got a terrific cast, all that kind of stuff. But then again, like I said earlier, it's just kind of exasperated by the fact that then I go and watch the second one and the second one takes away a lot of that joy because, again, I thought it was actually very, very poorly done and I didn't like it at all. So now we're coming into this third one. Now, the third one stars... The guy I contend is the best actor in the world right now who does not have an Academy Award. Uh, the best actor working right now who does not have an Academy Award on the shelf. And to me, that's Ray Fine. So that all looks really interesting. So I'm curious to see this film. I, I really am. But I'm kind of, really? You're planning seven? That sounds like they're getting ahead of themselves a bit here, Rob. Anyway, Rob, you hear this news and this story. How does this jump out to you? Well, you know, we talk about these shared cinematic universes. We've been talking about them a lot. And my feeling is uh, my axiom has always been never put your universe before your characters in your story. And while I think it's good to have plans and to plan out your stories, like if you were to make, say, John, a three film trilogy that took place in a universe, maybe a long time ago and far, far away, it's always good to plan in advance what you're going to do so you can tell a satisfying story to an audience and they can anticipate the next chapter and then be fulfilled when you deliver the goods. So I always think that that kind of planning is a good thing. But when you just announce we've got seven films in the pipeline, it always seems to me a bit arrogant and maybe that you're creating expectations that are a little mm, ambitious, which is good, but why not take it like make these plans, but then concentrate on making the films really good and then release them. And by the time you know it, hey, you have seven films because they were all successful and they worked. Yeah, again, and look, unlike some situations that are like, like remember the dark universe 
when Universal was going to do their MonsterVerse and they announced, we're going to do all these movies. We got, you know, Wolfman coming and we got Mummy and we've got this. And they launched with Tom and they did all this before launching one movie. At least Kingsman does have two films under their belt. You know, they've kind of got it started. But uh, that's kind of negated to me by the fact that I thought they're one and one. You know what I mean? I thought the first one's great. Second one's great. And by the way, Rob, it's not like these films have been making $900 million at the box office. Like the last one made a respectable $400 million. Actually, that's quite respectable, but it's not like it's blowing the doors off the box office. So I don't know. This to me is kind of curious. I would have at least waited to see how this third one does to point in direction. Question is for you guys. What do you think about this news that they are planning over there like seven more Kingsman films? Does that excite you? Or are you like, eh, let's wait and see how the next one works out? Jump on down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's do one more thing off the top. And this just kind of came out this morning. As you guys know, uh, Warner Brothers recently announced this tectonic shift in the whole movie theatrical experience universe when they came out and announced that they were not just moving Wonder Woman 84 on a direct-to-HBO Max day-and-date release, but they were going to do the same for every film they have coming out in 2021 for a grand total of 17 projects, Rob. 17 movies they have that they were going to go and just put directly on HBO Max. Now, in companion videos this weekend... Somebody asked a really good question, and they asked, how does this affect actors like, say, a Robert Downey Jr., for example, who have deals in their contracts for percentage of the box office take? For example, the Robert Downey Jr. was a great example because he very famously made the vast majority of his money on the MCU off of back-end deals. Yeah, I'll be in the movie for X number of millions of dollars, but I also get X percentage of the box office revenue, and that's where he made his real money. Christopher Nolan, Rob, recently was really oh, in the most. Oh, yes. Was it 20% or something like that? Yeah, of, of the gross. Of the gross for Tenet. I mean, that was just ridiculous. So the question came in, what is – Warner Brothers going to do with deals like that? Now, I didn't know the answer, but I said what I what I'm guessing they probably did was before making the announcement, they probably went to whatever parties had those types of deals. And Rob, those deals aren't common. They're right. they're not unusual, but they're not. It's not like every actor in a movie gets these these back end point deals. And we've seen in recent years studios kind of back away from offering those types of deals, but they are still offered, and there are some who still have that deal. So what I said was my guess of what they probably did was went to the to the interested parties, the people who have those deals in their contracts and say, look, we're going to move this thing straight to HBO. Let's negotiate here for us to buy that clause out of your contract. We'll give you like a, a million extra dollars right now to take that back end points deal out because we're going straight to HBO. That's why I said at the time. Well, it's not just the actors who have vested interest or even the writers who have vested interest. There's a story coming out today from Deadline that is suggesting that they are hearing that Legendary Pictures, the company, Rob, that financed like 75% of Dune's budget and financed like 75% of Godzilla versus Kong's budget. And they quite famously also financed a lot of Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight things. They're a big company. They're saying that Legendary is, number one, not happy with this move that HBO is doing, that Warner Brothers is doing, moving these films to HBO. 
but they weren't even notified. This this article and deadline is suggesting that Legendary wasn't even notified that Warner Brothers was going to be making this move. This comes to us um, in the uh, in the article here. It says this. I'm hearing that Legendary Entertainment has has or will send legal letters to Warner Brothers as soon as today, challenging the decision to put the Denis Villeneuve directed Dune onto into the HBO Max deal and maybe Godzilla versus Kong as well. On the latter, Legendary reported reportedly had Netflix ready to pull the film from Warner Brothers for around $250 million before Warner Media blocked it. Its sources said Legendary had no advance notice before last week's announcement that both Dune and Godzilla versus Kong were being part of the HBO Max plan. Legendary certainly seems to have the right to challenge Warner Media on its decision. Legendary and its partners has provided 75% of the 160 million or so net budget of Dune and an evil news directed adaptation of the Frank Herbert novel that was envisioned to be the first of multiple films exploiting the six novel series. It was put up a small amount and put up a similar amount, I should say, of the funding on Godzilla vs. on the Godzilla versus Kong film. Will the long term viability of the franchises be tarnished by starting out as an HBO Max offering? That is a great question. If you start Dune as a streamer movie, how does that affect its potential long-term viability? That's a question that that uh, Legendary is asking right now. Uh, this, Rob, is really interesting because while we knew, and I assume there would be some issues with actors and directors working on points and stuff like that, I didn't take into consideration the fact, what about these production partners? Legendary Pictures didn't put up 75%, like over $100 million to make Dune for it to go to HBO Max. They didn't do that. That's not why Legendary put up all that money. And they, as well as some other players in Hollywood right now, are accusing Warner Brothers of using them just to promote their new home streaming service. And they may have a point. They may have a very, very valid point, as a matter of fact, on that end. Now, let's for a second talk about, well, how how is Warner Brothers going to be dealing with these actors? You know, Gal, Gal Gadot, Rob, ha did have some back-end points deals on Wonder Woman 84. you got to assume one or two of the big-name actors in Dune probably had that as well. How is Warner Brothers going to deal with that part of it? Let's jump into the Campia classroom for a second. So they're handling this in two different ways. The one way is a way they dealt with Wonder Woman 84 and the new Anne Hathaway movie, The Witches. And then they're handling these 17 films coming out in 2021 completely differently. For Wonder Woman 84 and The Witches, Wonder Woman was given a calculation of a $1 billion box office. So what Warner Brothers said to all the parties involved with Wonder Woman 84 is, we think it's reasonable to make a guess that Wonder Woman 84 was going to make a billion dollars. So what they did for the players involved with Wonder Woman 84 was say, look, we will calculate your bonuses and your revenue based on Wonder Woman 84 making a billion dollars at the box office. That left everybody happy, right? It's like, okay, yeah, that's fair. I mean, maybe it would have made a little bit more at the box office, but maybe it would have made a little bit less. So a billion dollars is good. So now anybody who is standing to make bonuses on Wonder Woman 84 in the theaters will get those bonuses based on Wonder Woman's assumption of making a billion dollars. They did the same with the witches, although obviously they didn't assume the witches was going to make a billion dollars. But that's what they did with that. Everybody's happy. However, 
They are approaching it in a completely different way for all of these new 17 movies coming out in 2021. Warner Brothers is still considering these films theatrical releases. Even though all these movies are going to be going on HBO Max the day they're released, Warner Brothers is still classifying all the movies coming out in 2021 as theatrical releases. Now, here's what they're going to do instead. This is a lot of numbers, but it's actually quite important, so follow along with me here. Let's say an actor had a bonus that would kick in at $300 million. Like if this movie hits $300 million at the box office, this bonus kicks in with you. What they are going to do is Warner Brothers will say whatever bonus threshold that was at, like say $300 million, we're going to cut it in half. So Rob, if you made a movie called Revenge of the Chicken People for whatever reason, how did you know I have that in active development? Uh, I'm sorry. I, for, I forgot I signed an NDA about that. I wasn't supposed to say anything. I'm sorry. So Rob is making a movie called Revenge of the Chicken People, and I'm the studio. So I tell Rob, I'll tell you what, Rob, uh, as the director, if this movie hits $300 million at the box office, you get a $2 million bonus, right? So if this movie hits $300 million at the box office, you- Oh, it will. It will. <laughs> and it will. You will get a $2 million bonus. Well, here's the thing. Ain't no way in hell Revenge of the Chicken People is going to hit $300 million at the box office when it gets released on HBO Max on the same day. So I'm what pissed. HBO, what, <laughs> leaving you pissed. So what HBO is saying now is like, I'll tell you what, we will cut that number in half. So now to get that $2 million bonus, all Revenge of the Chicken People has to make in the theaters is half of that. It's only $150 million now. On top of that, on top of that, HBO will count 50% of whatever box office it does make and call that HBO Max's licensing fee and will apply that to the total of the overall bonus threshold. Does that sound confusing? Okay, let's put it this way. Let's say uh, Revenge of the Chicken People, okay? It makes a Rob needed $300 million, uh, to hit bonus, Right. Rob needed that film in his contract to hit three hundred million dollars for him to get his two million dollar bonus under the new rules. Now it only has to hit one hundred and fifty million. So let's say Revenge of the Chicken People comes out in theaters and only makes uh, one hundred million. Revenge oh, of the Chicken <laughs> it makes one hundred million at the box office. But all is not lost for Rob's bonus. Because now HBO is saying uh, they will take 50% of whatever it makes at the box office. So 50% of $100 million uh, is indeed $50 more million dollars and will apply that as an HBO licensing fee to it. So the threshold number, uh, number of $150 million is now hit, uh, hit and Rob gets his... Bonus because of that. Now, that's a lot of math and that's a lot of calculation, but that's the way HBO is going to kind of be looking at this, how Warner Brothers can look at it and calculate those deals. But Rob, while it sounds really convoluted and complicated, and in a way it is, it's important to understand that really Warner Brothers only has to worry about this for the next year. Because after 2021, they're just going to make sure they write all their contracts where people understand, <laughs> ain't no box office, kids. <laughs> 
It's all HBO Max. So this is only a temporary problem they have to deal with at the moment. And, you know, what they do in 2022 will open up a whole new bag of worms. But for now, it's just a temporary problem. But, Rob, this legendary thing could be an issue. Well, I was going to say, I mean, uh, you know, when you finance 75% of a film's production budget and suddenly your 75% investment is now beholden to the whims of AT&T and, and, and Warner's upper management and you haven't been consulted, I would say that's not very good business. Uh, Legendary would expect to be a pretty big partner on all decisions that are made. And by the way, Legendary has been financing movies for Warner Brothers for the better part of going on two decades now, more than more than 15 years. And they're on the lot, or they, at least they used to be. And they're a, they're a big part of what Warner has been doing. And the idea that they weren't consulted or they weren't brought in is, a, I think, a massive blunder on the – although I don't really know. I've reached out to a few people to ask about this kind of thing. And I just don't understand how something like that would happen, how you don't involve your investors who are that, how, who are that vested in your project. Right. Now, I'm going to let everybody – I'm a little inside baseball here, Rob, but I'm going to let everybody know a little bit. Rob has a – certain i won't give away specific percentages or anything but rob has a certain stake in because he helped me rob has a certain stake in my movie movie trailers a love story right you don't get you don't get what you deserve john you get what you negotiate you get what you negotiate now it's nowhere near the investment of say legendary into say dune but he has he has a certain uh uh interest in it and rob i think you can testify to this whenever I was facing certain decisions about what to do with the movie. One of the first things I would do is get on the phone with you. You, and, and, you absolutely and, did that. Because Rob has a – it doesn't matter how big or small it is. Rob has an interest in it, and I felt it's only fair that if I've got to make a decision about where to distribute it and who's going to do what and blah, 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 I figured it's only fair to at least consult with Rob because he has a he has a, a, a honest, vested interest. Honest. I've worked in this business for 30 years and you were the most transparent, upfront person in terms of, of that that I have ever worked with. You should you should see the studio accounting I get back still on Agent Cody Banks. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, wow. I mean, but it, Rob, it really does. It, it is kind of like when – who was it that pulled a movie – was it Universal? I can't remember. Yeah, it was Universal. When Universal decided they were going to pull their troll sequel from theaters, like they blindsided the theaters. The theaters are their theatrical partners. And they said, you didn't even talk to us before doing that. We found out from the news that yeah. you did this, right? It is kind of surprising to me, Rob, when you, especially when you consider the long term and deep relationship between Legendary and, uh, and Warner Brothers. That Warner Brothers would do something like this, and 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 that Legendary didn't know that they were going to announce that they're moving all their 2021 films to HBO Max. That's the part that surprises me most. What would Warner Brothers' motivation be for not having a discussion with Legendary about this? I, I honestly, I don't know. I I, I mean, to me, it, it, you're in partnership with Legendary. It's a partnership that's lasted for a, at least a decade and a half. I mean, when I was working on Superman Returns in 2005, I met like Thomas Tull and the, the guys at Legendary, John Jashney, those guys. I liked them. <laughs> they, like, why wouldn't you want to be chummy with the people that are bringing you all that cash 
to make your projects. I, I honestly don't understand. And I think perhaps, you know, I would chalk it up to the fact that AT&T, look, maybe this was an emergency thing. This was a, this was a sweeping decision that they made. They didn't just make it for a few of their films for half the year. They went in for the entire fiscal 2021 year, I guess, and beyond if you take it all the way into December. I mean, it's, that's a huge decision. And I, I would think that you would want to consult with Legendary specifically because of things like Dune. You know, they've planned to do three films when it comes to uh, Paul Atreides. They were going to do, from what I understand, they were going to do Dune, Dune Prophet, and Dune Messiah that would close out the Paul Atreides story. It was to be the Paul Atreides trilogy. And, and how, if that was the plan, you're in the middle of a business deal. You, you, it's not just this one-off. You're planning TV shows, and you're planning. I, I don't get it, man. I don't get it. Yeah, it's quite. I, I've got to assume, maybe naively, I have to assume there's more to this story than we're being told. That at some level, some back-channel communication had to have happened. But it's going to be really interesting to see how something like this, if it could disrupt HBO's Max's plans like could we end up in a situation where a judge says nah you can't put Dune or Godzilla versus Kong on HBO Max and that kind of messes up their plans I know could could you see something like that happening Rob could this go to a court and have a court say yeah you can't release these ones on HBO Max what do you think John as we are live on the air I just received a an email from an industry person that I trust implicitly uh, and that person wrote back, Warner Brothers believes that they control the distri distribution rights to Dune and Godzilla vs. Kong, where they can unilaterally decide on the release plan. Legendary only had approval rights to and changes with the release date. So they're pretty much screwed because from Warner Brothers' perspective, they are honoring their obligation for a theatrical release. Part of the reason why Warner Brothers treated Legendary that way was because of the way Legendary treated Warner Brothers when initially Warner Brothers wanted to move Tenant to Christmas and Legendary blocked it, saying they would not move Dune to another date. Nolan had a clause in his contract that no other WB movie would be released in the same six-week period. And when Legendary refused to move Dune, Warner Brothers had to release Tenant when they did or wait until 2021. Um, and apparently Warner Brothers execs were pissed off at Legendary for not being good partners then. I mean, that, it's not surprising because as the distributor, the distributor gets to decide where a film and how a film is presented. There's no doubt about that. But isn't it bad faith? Like, obviously, Legendary went into investing $100-plus million in this movie, Dune. Let, well, let's just keep it to talking about Dune. With the ex expectation that this was a movie that was going to hit theaters, maybe make $600 million uh, on on the theaters, maybe more, who knows, launch a trilogy and all that kind of stuff. So while Warner Brothers certainly has the right to do that, having the right to do something and being right doing it are often two different things. Wasn't this, isn't this kind of an act of bad faith on Warner Brothers' part? I, I mean, I think so. First of all, we're in the, 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 the movie distribution and exhibition business is, is, is a smoking ruin right now. It's, it's like Dresden after the bombing or it's out London after the Blitz. And what you need is all hands on deck working, I would think, together, figuring this stuff out and making these kinds of moves and throwing around, well, we have distribution rights and you shouldn't. Uh, 
and working with people like Christopher Nolan or Denis Villeneuve, why wouldn't you all want to get together in a room and hash this thing out to make unilateral decisions or be mad at somebody for holding up release dates? I mean, again, John, I go back to Bob Sugar from the great Jerry Maguire. It ain't show friends, it's show business. And this is not, to me, good business. And I, I especially with Warner Brothers having a long term finance partner like a legendary who's actually bringing in the the cheddar to make your product it's uh, it's a crazy situation it's and i'm sure we're going to find out more and i'm sure there's going to be other legal challenges as well this is 17 movies we're talking about right now we're only talking about two of them in dune and godzilla versus Kong. question here is guys what do you think about this? This throws an interesting wrench into the works. Do you think this could have big implications? Do you think this will really be much to do about nothing, which is very possible? Jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's get into our main topics today. Not that those weren't seriously big topics, but let's get into our predetermined main topics today, shall we? And how do we select our main topics here in the John Campy Show? Well, it's really rather simple. You see, you guys come up with them. By any time you come across a big topic or story you think we should talk about on the show, head on over anytime 24-7 to www.thejohncampyshow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's totally free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on the John Campia Show. With that down, let's get into main topic number one, shall we? And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Hamza Hussein. And Hamza writes, Hi, John. Hope you and Rob are doing well. Thank you so much, Hamza. I heard some rumors over the weekend about Sony's Latin American YouTube channel supposedly leaking confirmation of Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield being in Spider-Man 3. I saw the video in Spanish, but I don't know whether to believe it. Did you see it? Do you think the rumors are true? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks and keep up the awesome work. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And uh, yeah, listen. There has been some discussion and rumors and, and speculation going around about whether or not we could see in a world where Jamie Foxx is coming back as Electro and Ben Affleck is coming back as Batman, could we possibly see Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire pop back up in Spider-Man 3? That's been stuff we've, there's been no evidence to suggest that is happening, but certainly a lot of speculation. Again, Rob, Four months ago, five months ago, I would have said bloody impossible. But that's Dude, not the world we live in. Yeah, but it's 2020. That's not the world we live in anymore. This is absolutely possible. It's absolutely four months ago, impossible. Today, I wouldn't put anything by them. It's totally a possibility. Uh, I don't know that it's likely, but it's a possibility. So what uh, Hamza was referring to is this past, a couple of days ago. On Sony's, uh, one of Sony's Latin America sites, they put up this video, right? And you see people running around saying, Sony just hinted at it. They just confirmed that this is going to be happening. So I read all these headlines just like everybody else. It's like, oh, Sony's confirmed this. And I'm like, really? So I went and checked out the video. Uh, this is the video in question, right? Here's the thing. It's really a little news bite video that basically says, hey, 
Who's your favorite Spider-Man? Tobey Maguire, who played it from this year to this year. Andrew Garfield, who played it from this year to this year. Tom Holland, who played it from 2017 to the present. Who's your favorite Spider-Man? And hey, don't forget, we live in a multiverse, so it's okay. It doesn't matter who your favorite is because we live in a multiverse. And I looked at that, and I'm like, that was not them saying that this is what's happening in Spider-Man 3. That's not what this video said in the least. It is, by any definition, a stretch to say, oh, that meant that they're doing that. No. Now, look, my position on this, Rob, is, is pretty simple. I don't believe this little video they put up in any way, shape, or form was suggesting that Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire are going to be in Spider-Man 3. At the same time, I don't think this video in any way, shape, or form disproves that Andrew Garfield or Tobey Maguire could end up being in Spider-Man 3. I just don't think anything's changed. Uh, That video didn't change anything. And I think what happened was once Sony saw that people were taking that video and completely twisting it out of context, they pulled it down. They pulled the video down. So it's not out in public anymore, but of course, some people captured it and it's being repopulated. But yeah, again, this video was not saying that Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire are going to be in Spider-Man 3. That could still happen. That absolutely could still happen. But this video isn't the video proclaiming that. Rob, you had a chance to check this out. Was this video sending a signal, a flare signal in the air telling us that Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire are going to be in Spider-Man 3? No. No, no, it wasn't. I mean, look, I am not convinced. Like I've told you on the show before, there's a movie being made called Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. As we all know, that Kevin uh, uh, Kevin Feige is always taking cues for the MCU from the actual comic books themselves. This seems to me like a big Marvel crossover comic event would happen in, say, all of the annuals of your favorite comics. The summer annuals would do some kind of a crossover, whether it's the Extinction Agenda or something to do with Kang or something. It would not surprise me in the least if Marvel is doing some kind of multi-film storyline that covers a multiverse that is somehow kicked off with the Vision and Scarlet Witch. Because they have Hmm. said that that show leads into Doctor Strange in some way. So I could see... Uh, a little group of of the shows and the movies dealing with this. And what what cooler way than putting multiple Spider-Men in one live-action movie because it's already been done in an animated film and it won an Academy Award for Best Animated Film. So it wouldn't surprise me. But we have had no official confirmation that anything like this is happening. It's almost like fan wish fulfillment that we keep dealing with. And until it's announced which I think is a possibility because it is 2020. And why not? Why not, you know, team up? Why doesn't Spider-Man cross over with Luke Skywalker? That wouldn't surprise me either. (laughs) But you just never know until we have official confirmation, not from some uh, package on a a television station comparing and contrasting Spider-Man over the centuries. I mean, you know, uh, it would, John, if that happened, I would have an excuse to put my three Hot Toys versions of Spider-Man on the same shelf together. And that would make me happy. <laughs> yeah, and again, I want to make sure I'm being very clear here. Not, not This is not us saying, 
we're not going to see, we are definitively not going to see Andrew Garfield or Tobey Maguire. No. I, we're not saying that. We're just saying that this little thing that was out, this little, little social media sizzle that they put out is not the thing that's telling us that they will be in it. That That's all no. we're saying at this point. Questions, frankly, guys. Oh, go ahead. Can Bob. I ask you, can I yeah. ask you, if they announced that Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and Tom Holland were all appearing as Spider-Man in the next Spider-Man movie, would you think that was cool or not? I honestly don't know I, because there's something there's something about it. Like fan service is like any other tool. It can be used right. really effectively or it can be re used really badly. And I just don't know if just such blatant, hey, kitties, come give us your money. Look, we've got all three Spider-Men in here. I, 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 don't, I just I don't know. I'd be torn. I think I would have to see some kind of clip or video to put it in context for me. Yeah. So I don't I don't know how I'd feel about it initially. I mean, a lot of people, what is undeniable though, is that an awful lot of people would be very excited about it just in premise. Just like, in premise. You know, to me, one of the most exciting things that's coming out is Godzilla, you know, King Kong and Godzilla throwing down. Like that I'm <laughs> I'm down with. And I know one is a Toho monster and one is a monster that was originated here in the States. But uh, – and that to me is cool. And I grew up with Godzilla versus King Kong, the Toho versions of it. But I, I don't know how I feel about if they announced three Spider-Men showing up in a movie. I don't know if I could get past the gimmicky nature of it. Yeah, it, it would it, it would feel it would feel very gimmicky. I mean that's that's the thing. But that yeah. hey, listen, in Feige we trust, right? I know. I mean, yes, I'm worried it looks kind of gimmicky, but it's in the hands of Kevin Feige. And so if anybody's gonna find a way to take that and make it more epic as opposed to gimmicky, it's him. It's him. I would just have to see some material first to kind of know how I feel. So anyway, the question is, guys. What do you think about this? Do you think this little video was the big announcement that Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire are going to be in Spider-Man 3? We don't, but maybe they still will ultimately. How do you guys see it? Jump down into the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Joshua Klein. And Joshua Klein writes, So... The first reviews for Wonder Woman 84 came out and they look to be overwhelmingly positive. I can't say I'm surprised. I have faith in Patty Jenkins, but the trailers didn't really grab me. So this definitely excites me more. Where's your excitement level upon hearing these first reviews? All right. Thanks a lot for sending this in, man. And uh, yeah. A number of people have already seen Wonder Woman 84. They did a little virtual press thing with it as well, and they let a number of people see it. And without exception, the response has been overwhelmingly positive, like absolutely outstanding. We get a, a friend of ours, Eric Davis, writes, I'm so happy to report that Wonder Woman 84 is an absolute blast from start to finish. I love Eric, by the way. From start to finish, an exceptional compliment uh, to the first film. It's stuffed with heart, hope, love, action, romance, and humor. Patty Jenkins, Gal Gadot, and the team delivered one of DC's best sequels. Uh, I was in tears when it ended. Then our friends over at Joe Blow 
if I can find it here. Our friends over at Joe Blow wrote, uh, Godot perfectly captures the essence of Wonder Woman once again. Pedro Pascal uh, and Kristen Wiig were brilliantly cast, which is interesting to hear because I love Kristen Wiig, but I've been a little bit iffy on she was if she was the right person to play Cheetah. And yes, Chris Pine's unusual and inspired return is a huge bonus, both with humor and heart. Wonder Woman 84 is a joyful, thrilling, and engaging sequel, uh, one that manages to connect uh, with what worked in the first time around, yet still uniquely its own thing, emotional, hilarious, and exciting, perhaps even better than the first. And Rob, that's just kind of uh, symbolic of really what most of the reactions I'm reading on this have been. Now, you know what my attitude about Wonder Woman 84 has been. I have absolute faith in Patty Jenkins. As long as Patty Jenkins is in the director's chair, I'll believe in the film. The trailers have not helped. Like, I, I haven't been very big on the trailers. I don't think the trailers have been all that impressive. I don't think they sucked, but I don't think the trailers have been all that. They they haven't made me more excited for it, right? But despite that, if it's Patty Jenkins, I trust Patty Jenkins. I believe it's going to be good. These are better than I thought we were going to hear, and that's kind of exciting to me. Rob, you hear these reviews. Were you, ex- were you surprised to hear these reviews? And what does it do for your anticipation level right now? Well, you know, whenever people on social media get to see these early screenings more often than not we get a lot of positive reviews because there is that initial excitement when you first see something you're like wow i really like that you don't really have time to ruminate on whether the movie was actually good or bad you've just hmm. you've just seen it and I, i'll tell you the one thing about the trailers like you and i've talked about that the trailers were not as overwhelmingly uh, our anticipation was not off the charts based on the trailers. For me, where the trailers failed is it doesn't state the central premise of the movie. I have no idea other than Wonder Woman, and I know that Cheetah's in it, and I know that Steve Trevor comes back. What's it about? Like, why is it set in 1984? And I have no sense of why should I be excited about this movie other than the fact that Wonder Woman's in another movie. You know, I don't normally you're like, wow, that premise sounds really interesting. Like we know that in Endgame the, or, or in Infinity War, Thanos was going to make his move for the Infinity Stones and everybody was going to be involved. And you're like, I want to see that. Why, why is Cheetah fighting Wonder Woman? You know, and, and we, we don't we don't have any idea what it is about. So I think that's why we can't get that excited about it, because, yeah, we know Wonder Woman's coming. But why should I get excited? And that's been, I think, problematic. But I've heard, I even heard from somebody who actually worked on the film over the weekend in a, in a, in a capacity. And he's very curious how the movie is going to be received because he said he, it's a good movie, but it's not like Wonder Woman, the first Wonder Woman, that it has a very different, as I said, premise. So I'm curious what that means. And I want it to be good, you know, but I just don't know. I don't like I'm not as excited as I I'm not as excited as I want to be, John. I want to be stoked. I really like the first movie. I'm a Patty Jenkins fan, but I watch this film and I'm like, does everybody in the world have their wishes come true? Is it based on some magical premise? Is that why Steve Trevor comes back and. And and we we see Cheetah because somebody wished they were better. And is that what Maxwell Lord is saying to everyone? Like, is it based in magic? Like, I don't I don't know. I want to see it. That does kind of seem like the the direction they're going in uh, with that. I mean, but the one thing you brought up is also true. It's like sometimes 
I don't really buy into very heavily this whole notion that, oh, because somebody got to see it early earlier, they like it more. I don't buy that because when you're people like you and I, Rob, and you've seen a thousand movies early, you stop caring about the fact that you saw no, it early. But, it re- no, I, but, about the- but, but I will say this, but I will say this in this specific instance, because it has been so long since there has been any big release, anything kind of like even remotely similar to what normal coverage of what a movie has been and being able to cover a big movie. I cannot help but wonder. And listen, I know most of these people putting these out. I know they're they have great integrity. I know all that. I'm not questioning that in the least. Just be clear on that. But I cannot help but wonder if in this specific circumstance, Rob, the fact that, oh, my God, we're watching a big movie again and covering it in a press like way. I can't help but feel not that they were being dishonest in the least about what it was they were saying, but I can't help but if maybe that added enthusiasm about, oh, we're back getting to do our jobs again. We're what we're covering a big movie that's coming out. We're talking to the filmmakers involved. We are getting back to our jobs. And I just can't help but wonder if all that positivity that you feel over that because we're all human. We're all human. I wonder if some of that might have spilled over into their enthusiasm for the movie. I don't know. But end of the day, I just believe in Patty Jenkins. Do you think that could, could play a part of it? Yeah. I mean, look, I think it was it, it is the initial excitement. When you get look, I'm I always feel that when I, I get to see a movie that I've anticipated for a long time and I finally get to just chew stick that chewy goodness in my brain and and munch on it. I feel good about it anyway. There's all I are. I'm already. There's a lot of goodwill I have toward that particular film from the get go, and uh, uh, you know when you come right out of it, you're you're processing it. You haven't had time to sit back and go, huh? So I think you know it probably is a good movie. Why would it not be? But I I don't know. Is it better than the first one or not? Does it matter? As long as it's a good movie, do you watch it unto itself? I don't know. You know, I didn't like John Wick 2 as much as I like John Wick 1, but I still like John Wick 2 because Keanu Reeves shooting dudes in the head. I'm in. (laughs) Question is, guys, what I mean, this is look in in the world of is this good news or bad news? This is obviously very good. What do you think about these overwhelmingly positive responses to Wonder Woman 84? I think it's great. I I think it's really great. I am looking forward to it again. I never doubted because it's Patty Jenkins. Just that the trailers didn't really do it for me. What do you guys think about this? Jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to an interesting one. Main topic number three. And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by John Ross. And John Ross writes, The Globe and Mail, that's a Canadian major newspaper, by the way, is reporting that the decision for Warner Brothers to make their 2021 slate of films available on streaming day and date with the theatrical release will only be in the U.S. All other jurisdictions, including Canada, will stick to the normal 90-day window. Won't this lead to a severe piracy problem for Warner Brothers? Okay, thanks for sending that in. And yeah, listen. That has been something that we started talking about, particularly when it comes to the new streaming industry, about a year ago when The Mandalorian was coming out. You remember this? Mandalorian was coming out. Everybody in the world was talking about it. 
But Disney Plus was not going to be available in most countries by the time it launched. And we on this show speculated, and we were right, is that Mandalorian is going to become one of the most pirated pieces of content in the history of media. And sure enough, it was pirated a hell of a lot. Now we have a situation where certain territories are going to be able to have some of these streaming movies that HBO Max is going to be putting out on their service available in certain countries, but not in most of them. In most of them, you're going to have to go to your closed down movie theater that is still not open because of COVID in order if you want to hope to see it, which is going to, again, open the door for piracy. As a matter of fact, Bloomberg just did a great article on this the other day talking about how we they are already seeing massive spikes in piracy particularly when it comes to the premium video on demand like they did with Mulan. As they talk about in this article, Mulan, which did a premium video on demand, was pirated twice as much as Lion King was, which was just put on, you know, this uh, that just had a totally different rollout sort of thing. Twice as many people pirated Mulan. Even though... Mulan wasn't going to make more money than uh, than The Lion King did. And and it wasn't even that good of a movie. Mulan wasn't even that good. I mean, it was all right, but a lot of people didn't like it. But it saw massive spikes in piracy. Rob, particularly when we're talking about this situation here where HBO Max is going to stream it into people's homes, movies like Wonder Woman, Dune, Godzilla versus Kong, whatever, they're going to be streaming it into millions and millions, tens of millions of people's homes. While there are billions of other people around the world who will not have access to the movie on that level, they're going to have to go to whatever movie theaters might be open around them to see it. Bloomberg suggests, and I think they're right, that this is going to lead to an even bigger piracy issue for Warner Brothers. Now, I think that piracy issue issue will get uh, alleviated a bit once HBO Max does start spreading out to other territories, but we're still a year or more away from that kind of happening, having like real saturation for it. Rob, what do you think about this notion? Is this move going to lead to an even bigger piracy problem for Warner Brothers at this point? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, it's it's just it, it it is. Look, I I don't know why in this day and age piracy is still an issue. I mean, I think it's more out of habit than anything else because once things are available, you can you can see them. Um, but yeah, I do think it's gonna anything that comes out day and date, anything that causes people to be able to say like, hey, 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 you know, I got a copy of this. We're going to watch it at home. And as, as a former video pirate myself, um, I know that there is that kind of joy of, of, of acquiring something early that you can see and show your friends or even have bragging rights and say that you have it. Um, uh, I, but I, I, I think it is problematic. And um, I guess if you're releasing it, if you're releasing something day and date on TV – you must have already taken into consideration it's going to get pirated because once it's broadcast, you're done. You're done. Mm. It's all around the world. So the, the one thing I would say is it, it is a it is a problem that I also believe is a temporary problem because, look, in my estimation, when I look back on history about music piracy, 
right? When I look back on history and you remember Napster, some of you may not have been around while Napster was the big thing. I mean, that was the thing that disrupted everything. Napster came out. Everybody could easily just go and steal songs online. It was super easy to me, Rob, what ultimately killed Napster was not all the RIAA lawsuits. It wasn't all the litigation. It wasn't all the suing. That's not the stuff to me that killed Napster. What really killed Napster to me, in my estimation, was Apple's iTunes started this revolution where, oh, you can buy individual songs digitally on iTunes. I think it was for 99 cents, 99 cents a song. And what you started seeing after that was a sharp decline in music. It didn't disappear but you saw a decline in music piracy. I believe, and maybe I'm naive for believing the basic goodness of humanity, but whatever, we'll go there for now. I believe that for the vast, vast, vast majority of people, if you offer us as consumers an easy, convenient way to access content for a reasonable price, we as consumers are more than happy to pay for that content. And so when Apple at the time, and now the music model is totally different now, now it's totally a monthly subscription-based model. But at the time, when Apple said, hey, look how easy it is. If you get your favorite song, 99 cents, just open up iTunes, click buy, boom, you've got it. When that started happening, I believe that sent the signal to the rest of content creators. If you provide an easy, accessible, convenient way at a reasonable price for people to access your content, you're going to be good and you're going to see a dip. It's not going to eliminate piracy, but you're going to see a dip. Rob, though, right now we're in a situation where the this transition period we're into a streaming world means HBO Max cannot offer that easy, convenient um, non-hassle way to acquire their content because it's not going to be available in 90% of the countries around the world when they start doing it. So you now have this battleground where, again, you're not offering people an easy, convenient way to download it reasonably and legally at a convenient price. And therefore, I think, but I think once HBO Max starts to saturate the market, once Disney Plus is now penetrated and is going to be in 90% of the countries around the world, once all that happens, I don't think it's going to be a real significant problem anymore. But in the meantime, I think it will be. What do you think about that thesis of mine? <laughs> Look, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, people want ultimately in this day and age, we live in that in a world now, it's over 20 years old, where you can click on something, you download it, and you own it. And all of media, all the things that we consume as media, whether it's music, whether it's movies, it's all just data. It's all just files. And you can get it and watch it. Now, the problem with that is it's really hard to value files. Uh, whether it's, I mean, software, certainly all the, all the software companies move to a licensing model. You know, you want to use editorial software, you license their software and you keep paying for it once a year as opposed to like buying new updates in a box with physical date. Remember that? You'd go buy a piece of software and it would come in a box <laughs> yep. on a CD-ROM or whatever. You'd load it onto your computer. Well, that quickly, people would pass those things around. But if you have a licensing fee, then people are like, oh, okay, I'll download it. And I've, I've, it's just easier that way. You can get updates or – so once people are conditioned to that, like 99 cents is only 99 cents. I'll download that. And I think that that you're, you're probably absolutely right about that. It was 
a combination of the novelty, the ease, the 99 cent price tag. You didn't have to buy a lot of filler. Like you get an album and you only like two songs on it anyway. So you download those two songs, like you said. And I, I just think it's a better way of doing business. But up until then, look, I got a letter on my show from somebody. I think it was from Indonesia. And they have their local te- broadcast television stations show things that are illegal downloads because they can't get them any other way. <laughs> you know, there's so so there's people broadcasting illegal stuff or there's Internet channels that allow them to get illegal things because they're not being uh, available. When I went to Israel back in 2005 to show a film that I'd made, I had so many people come up to me and they're like, oh, listen, uh, we um, – we buy a lot of pirated stuff because they just don't release it here. How do you feel about that? And I'm like, well, what else are you supposed to do? You know, if you can't get it legally and you want to see it, I, I don't see that there's an alternative. Life is too short. You know, if you, there's too many places, like I want to see a movie that I can't get in the United States, I'll order it from Amazon in Europe or Amazon Japan. Or uh, look, man, to be honest, John, last night I ordered a bootleg Blu-ray of Pink Floyd The Wall, Alan Parker's Pink Floyd The Wall. I won't say where I got it, but it's not on Blu-ray. And I've wanted Pink Floyd The Wall. It's a grail disc for me. And this guy made one, and I'm like, click. And I felt guilty about it for like two seconds. And then I'm like, I'm going to get Pink Floyd right. The Wall on Blu-ray. But you already, already own Pink Floyd The Wall, right? But only but it's not on in Blu-ray. Right, it's but not in Blu-ray. Yeah, right. And I want the high-definition version. And I'm like, why can't I get it? Like, I want to buy Pink Floyd The Wall, but because of somebody's music rights or whatever, I can't get that movie. And if somebody's going to make it available to me, I'll buy it. Yeah. And it, it but it goes down to the basic principle of supply and demand, right? Like, it's like even when, even when Napster disappeared, right? Even once Napster disappeared and Sean Parker's thing kind of went kaput, the demand for that was still around. And so you you had other ways to go around and get the music that was getting pirated, right? But again, to me, it all comes down to that model that when iTunes came, what really started to then curb piracy was when iTunes made an easy, convenient, at a reasonable price way for everybody to get the content that they want without having to pirate. Piracy still existed after that, for sure. But that made a much bigger dent in piracy than, say, you know, lawsuits against Napster or the, or the closing of Napster or the closing of this pirate site or whatever – it was giving people an easy way to do it. And I think once these streaming services figure out a way to do that as well, and they will get there, then I don't think piracy will be as big of a problem. It's still going to be an issue for sure. But for now, massive spikes in it. And I think we can expect to see that for a little while. John, you guys, uh, oh, yes. I was going to show you something. What is it? Speaking of piracy, here is True Lies on Blu-ray, on Blu-ray. which does not exist anywhere. Nope. <laughs> Just saying oh, it exists in my house. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, uh, I want I do not understand why James Cameron's Lightstorm has not released four of their films in the United States. True Lies, The Abyss, Strange Days and Soderbergh's remake of Solaris. Why haven't they? I mean, I've been waiting four years. True Lies is a bootleg and I have two. I have a German version of Strange Days and a German version of Solaris, but I can't get them here. Everybody wants the director's cut of The Abyss on Blu-ray or 4K and we can't get it. Why? 
This is a question people have asked you for a long time. Question is, guys, what do you think about this? This, the, you know, Bloomberg and other reporting that these massive spikes in piracy as a result of this transition period. Do you think this will be a temporary problem? Do you think it's going to be a long-term problem? What do you think is going to solve it? Jump down into the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to our fourth and final main topic today. And our fourth and final main topic today gets submitted to us by Mason. And Mason writes, hey, John, with the recent news of Warner Brothers dropping all of their films onto HBO Max and theaters potentially closing for good, what will happen to other studios that don't have their own streaming services? Lionsgate and Sony don't have their own service. So what will happen to films like Venom 2 and John Wick? Will they have to sell them to another streamer or come up with their own services? Thanks and keep up the great work. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And, you know, this is something that's come up a little bit lately about as we've seen and we broke down the economics of, you know, studios like Disney transitioning to Disney Plus, Warner Brothers transitioning to HBO Max, truly probably the two biggest players in the game. We now have Universal has their own streaming service in Peacock. I still don't like the name, but it's actually a pretty good service. I've downloaded it. I like Peacock, as a matter of fact. Just, you, just don't come like, on. Just don't like saying the name. After all the hell that you gave them for that name, you're it's actually going to like it. It's still a stupid name, but it is just the name. I do like the service. Um, what is going to happen, though, with studios that have not positioned themselves to make that transition over to a streaming world. And because Disney and Warner Brothers seem to be abandoning the, the theaters pretty quick, theater industry isn't going to be the same. Will the theaters be there to support the movies they want to make and, and stuff like that? That is a great question. Sony in particular is an interesting case study on this, Rob, because Sony does put out big movies, right? And right now, other than their interest in, say, Crackle, uh, I think they also have interest in another some some kind of uh, vested interest in another stream. They don't have what you would call a Sony Plus sort of thing, right? So Sony's been a big question. I mean, I actually talked about it this weekend on one of our companion videos about I am really curious to see what is Sony going to do. And somebody wrote to me, and this just kind of blew my mind when I really started to think about it. Somebody wrote to me and said this, John, don't forget, Sony has PlayStation. They have PlayStation, which if you want to talk about a platform, we talk about platforms, Rob. We talk about Amazon Fire Stick, the Apple TV. We talk about the Chromecast TV. We obviously talk about Roku, the NVIDIA Shield, and many, many others. We talk about those as platforms. The PlayStation as a platform is in a lot of homes, like a lot of homes. If Sony, and by the way, Rob, I don't know if you knew this, a couple of years ago when I was still doing movie talk, there was some discussion and some negotiation going on because Sony was actually interested in buying movie talk and making it a PlayStation exclusive show that wow. would only be streamed on PlayStation. I didn't know now, that. These were just, I mean, got us really excited at the notion, but these were just kind of baseline discussions. That obviously didn't go anywhere, but still. And once somebody wrote into me about that and said, look, you got to start looking at the PlayStation, not just as a video game console. It is, and, and the same could be said of the Xbox, but it is certainly an entertainment platform 
that has all these apps. And imagine if Sony started, like, whether they evolved and transformed Crackle or they started something else and really invested heavily into it and made it something that was on PlayStations. And you get this service for free if you buy a PlayStation. Let's say you buy a PlayStation 5, congrats, you get Sony Plus. And they they have all that. And that's a way to make a lot of money. You can make a lot and still make it available to people who don't have PlayStations. For $10, $12 a month, you get Sony Plus. It's interesting. If they don't go that way, Rob, though, if they don't go that direction and they're in a position like Lionsgate or like even Paramount now has CBS All Access, which I believe they're transitioning into Paramount Plus at some point, it leaves a lot of these other studios with a very important decision to make. Either A, they have to make the decision to actually start the work of developing their own co- of developing their own streaming platform. That's one option. It's an extremely expensive option that will cut, take tens of billions of dollars to do. But that is one option. The other option, it seems to me, Rob, is that they just accept a role that we are going to be a content creation company that will then sell our creations to these streaming platforms. Because, Rob, with the proliferation of these streaming platforms, there is going to be an increased need and maybe market for content. Right. Disney, Disney Plus won't be one of those content acquirers because they only want to have content on their network that they own all the rights to because they don't want to pay licensing fees. But Netflix is going to be around. Peacock is going to be around. I mean, maybe these studios transition to we just make the movies and then sell them to the streaming services. Maybe that's an avenue, although that's not where the biggest money will be. Rob, when you look at companies like Sony, Lionsgate, maybe a couple of others, what do you think the future, the immediate roadmap ahead lies for them? Creating their own streaming services, becoming content creators only, another option. Where do you think this is going to go? Uh, it's tough to say because I think the future is in in streaming. And, uh, you know, are we going to wind up with just the major studios, whether it's Peacock over Universal, you've got Disney, you've got Warner's, HBO Max, like what's Sony, like you said, what are they going to do? I I would tend to think that assuming somebody doesn't buy Lionsgate, and I think it's very probable that somebody will buy Lionsgate or the MGM library, I think we're going to wind up – I mean Lionsgate as a studio might just be a content provider, but that's not really – they want more than that, and yet they're not big enough to start their own streaming service. So – Maybe they'll just chug along the way they are chugging along, but uh, they've done pretty good making those action movies with, like, whether it's Ryan Reynolds and uh, Bruce. You know, they they make all those 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 like mid level the 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 um, John Wicks, the, <laughs> yeah, the well, the bodyguard movies too. The, yeah, the, you know the the bo- the bodyguard's wife or whatever that he did with Sam Jackson and Ryan Reynolds. I mean, those they'll probably continue to do that as long as they can keep them financed and then they'll become, I guess, a content provider. But I mean, I think part of Lionsgate's business was also, you know, they had franchises that made money like John wick made money theatrically for them worldwide. But if that's removed, if theatrical exhibition is going away, I I really don't know what's going to happen to be honest. Yeah. It it does put them in an interesting position. I, yeah, I don't know enough about their business model 
to be honest. Like, how can they sustain? Are are they going to be viable as a studio? I wish I knew more about it. I wish I knew more about the deal makings, the inner workings of these deals today, and how all of this is affecting the worldwide distribution of these movies, because it's it's changing so fast, especially now with what Warner Brothers did. I, I feel like I'm adrift. I, I don't have any. I can't wrap my head around all of it. There's so many moving pieces. So many moving pieces. Question is, guys, for you, as we see these big moves being made by guys like Disney Plus and HBO Max, what do you think a lot of these other studios that have been power players in the past but don't seem to be positioned right right now, what do you think they're going to do and how do you think they're going to come out of this? Jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With all that down and out of the way, we're now going to move on and start taking your live comments and questions that you guys have been sending in. And here's how you get a live comment or question on the show. You can use this tip link anytime, 24-7, by the way. Simply go to the tip link that's near the top of the description of this video, or you can enter it in manually simply at streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be getting your comment or question on the show if it's reasonable. And, of course, you'll be supporting the show at the same time. And all of us here on The John Campus Show Thank you guys very much for supporting us on that level. Let's get to it now. And we got a lot to get to. First of all, Matt's just sent in a, a tip to be supportive. Thank you, Matt's, for that. Uh, next up, Leo Milmet writes, just started binging Mandalorian from beginning for the first time, except having seen the pilot before. How is Werner Herzog in a Star Wars show? That's so weirdly awesome and perfect for my cinephile self. And Baby Yoda is precious. Love the show, Giovanni. Thank you so much. And dude, Rob, listen, that was clearly... To me, one of the most exciting things about Mandalorian coming out was when I heard that Werner Herzog was going to be in this thing. It's just the most awesome thing ever. I miss him on this show. Uh, but that was one of the, what was your first reaction when you heard Werner Herzog was game? And I thought he fit in beautifully into this universe. What did you think? Oh, his voice, the way he spoke, it was just, I loved it. Look, this is the kind of say what you want about the Mandalorian, their choice of guest stars, whether it's Timothy Oliphant or Carl Weathers or, or Werner Herzog, it's been great. It's been great. And I, I just feel that's what's given the show sort of its unique flavor is whoever they're going to have show up. You know, Amy Sedaris even. Uh, it's 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 just a lot of fun. It's a, I still love Werner Herzog for those. I mean, you've probably heard the story, but go look it up. Werner Herzog was is the man who was literally giving an interview, I believe, to the BBC out in, in some country on location, and he got shot. There was a bang. People looked around, and Werner Herzog's doing the interview. Blah, blah. Mm, I've been shot. Anyway, and then he just continues on with the interview. That's <laughs> Werner Herzog. That is the baddest-ass man on the planet. All right, let's move on here. Next up, Jeff Simmons writes, Hey, John, uh, you have talked before about how The Godfather made an impact by showcasing revolutionary filmmaking techniques never before seen. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what a few of those contributions were. How were films different prior to The Godfather? And what specifically was it about The Godfather that influenced filmmakers from that point on? Thanks and salutations. Well, I mean, look, Rob, when you look at The Godfather, here's here's the litmus test for me, right? When you show somebody an older film that they've never seen, like a Star Wars, by the way, where their eyes light up and go, oh, my God. And they start thinking of all the films they've seen since that movie came out and realizing all these films I know and love have been influenced by that. I've never had that experience more than with The Godfather. On a couple of occasions, I've sat down and watched 
you know, the first Godfather with a number of people. And every time it's been like, oh, that's where that came from. And oh, that's oh, and I've seen them do that kind of a story in this movie, this movie, this movie, this movie. And oh, that's what sleeping with the fishes means. And oh, that's what going to the mattresses mean. But like, it's the kind of movie where it clearly just influenced an entire generation of filmmakers, much like Star Wars did. But it's a movie that created, I don't want to say a, a pattern for making movies, but it upped the stakes for what you could do with those sorts of narratives. And when you watch it for the first time, you realize just how influential that movie, that has been moving forward. The combination of tragedy with heroism, the combination of moral ambiguity and gray areas, all within our heroes and antagonists at the same time. It, it was just done in such a way that we had never really seen before. It's hard to put your finger on it specifically. Rob, if you were put on the spot and said, what made Godfather unique? How would you respond to that? Well, I think that one of the things that I love about the 1970s, the movies of the 1970s, is you you were making they were making big studio movies with an eye toward creating what I like to say my favorite word verisimilitude and and the godfather looks like it was actually shot in the late 40s they 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 from Gordon, Gordon Willis's cinematography evoked a period before then hollywood movies were glossy affairs you know and and they were they were shot on sets and on sound stages and they were brightly lit and there was not a lot of uh, use of shadow. And from the opening of The Godfather, when The Godfather is talking to, uh, as a, I think it's Bonacera, the, the undertaker about, um, I believe in on America. The, on the day, uh, isn't, that, isn't that the scene where on the day of his uh, daughter's wedding? Is that right off the bat? Yeah, yeah, the whole thing. But he's asking for justice. He's come yes. to ask, I believe in America. I made my fortune here, you know, and... It, it, Gordon Willis is painting with shadow as opposed to painting with light. And and you there's a feeling that what you're watching isn't so much a movie. It's almost like you're watching something that was captured there. And the feel of it, it creates a reality that seldom had been seen in Hollywood. I mean, sure, you had historical epics that were were like Lawrence of Arabia and things later on in Hollywood history. But, you know, even the great biblical epics like Ben-Hur or the Ten Commandments were these brightly lit technicolor affairs where it, it you knew that you were watching a movie. But with The Godfather, with the cinematography, the way it was shot and even the editorial style, you believed what you were watching was real. And that's something that carried over to a lot of, of the filmmaking of the 70s because you had people like William Friedkin who directed The Exorcist come out of documentary films. So it was it was it was an extraordinary achievement. Yeah, and you can still see the influence that it has today. All right, excellent question, Jeff. Next up, uh, hey, John, love the show, writes, you always talk about how home theaters are crap compared to real theaters, true. Uh, my question, if you could retain either the quality of a movie theater showing, projector and sound system, or the experience of watching with a crowd of fans, what would you choose? Oh, that's easy, crowd of fans. Listen, that that is part of what makes the home theater experience so incredibly inferior to a real theater experience. Yes, in the real theater, you have the true giant screen, the real sound, the booming auditorium and all that kind of stuff. But you cannot separate the notion of the crowd. You know, Rob, I was talking about how the, it's, the movies are always going to continue to be awesome and great and wonderful. But the pixie dust, the magic 
of movies comes from being in a theater with other people that when you gasp and jump and sigh and yell and cheer all together in an environment like that, when you're watching uh, Life is Beautiful, the Roberto Benigni masterpiece, Rob, and you get to the end of that film, you get near the end of that film, and ev all you could hear throughout the theater is the sound of weeping, and everybody's having that shared experience together, yeah. weeping. It, or when Mjolnir flies into Captain America's hand, and the crowd goes, and they, they all lose their mind. That, to me, that's where the magic happens. Like, that's the magic of watching movies. And so... Whether I have a 1080 TV or a 4K TV, whether my TV has, you know, HDR or it doesn't have HDR, it's all, it's, it's, it's nickels and dimes. It's, it's whatever. It's, it's minor differences, whatever. If I could somehow capture that experience of every time I watch a movie at home, I could have 50 other people in the house with me watching it. That's what I would take every single time. I still love movies on their own, even when I'm watching them alone or it's just me and Anne. still love them. They're still great. Don't get me wrong. But you cannot recapture that magic that you lose when you're just watching in your house. I know, Rob, how would you answer that question? I, I, I got to go 180 degrees opposite of you <laughs> be, because I watch more movies at home than I watch in the theater. And while I agree- I do too. I mean, I do too, to be honest. I mean, I, the, if I could, I've been in, I've been in home theaters, people who have million dollar home theaters with, you know, $500,000 projectors in their home. And I, if somebody said, Rob, you can have a million dollar home theater and never go to the movie theaters again, or see movies with an audience all day, every day, I'd take the million dollar home theater only because <laughs> I want the experience for me. I want the most optimal viewing experience. And especially when I go back and watch movies that I love, like movies like all that jazz, one of my favorite films of all time. If I could watch that on a million dollar home theater, I would choose to do so, you know, and, and, and I, I would forego seeing movies with other people because while I agree with you, seeing both infinity war and Endgame. I mean, I, was, I saw Endgame with you. Those were two of the most fun, especially with sitting next to the great John Schnepp. Uh, when, when, when that Hugo Weaving sound-alike voice came out and it was the Red Skull, Schnepp and I like were, were, were jumping in our seats like little kids. I wouldn't have traded that experience for the world. But if I had a million-dollar home theater, I might. Uh, yeah, not me. Yeah, you, you and I are complete. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would love, I would love the million dollar home theater, but like, I just can't imagine, you know, watching like so many of the movies that really make an impact on me and not having that shared collective experience as it's happening. Like, man, you and I talk about it as one example, but how different was our experience watching? Thor showing up in Wakanda in Infinity War or Mjolnir flying into Captain America's hands in, in Endgame. Imagine having seen that for the first time alone in your house instead well, that, of, yeah. you know, I mean, and that's, it's that, that's the stuff that I love about the movies. That's what I love most about the movies, but we all look, but that's a great example of how we all look for our, our different things and different experiences. All right, let's keep moving on here. Uh, Shelly G writes, 
Hey, John, hope you're well. I am well. Thank you so much. I don't think the UK or the EU will get HBO Max with Sky and HBO partnership with TV programming. However, I could see with now TV having its own streaming service and HBO Max Sky Now TV service with Sky making deals to have Wonder Woman 84. Well, see, I listen, I don't know the UK, so I'm not very well versed in how Sky works. But what we have seen before is other streaming networks. Let's take CBS All Access, for example. They had a piece of content in Star Trek Discovery that CBS All Access was not in every country. So what they did specifically was they licensed CBS All Access to other streaming platforms that were in other countries. So if you were in, say, Bulgaria, you could watch Star Trek Discovery on Netflix there, but not in the U.S. in the U.K. I could see some interim arrangements being made by HBO Max and Warner Brothers for territories that don't have it yet. I have not heard of any of these deals being made, but I could see that being a potential thing. Otherwise, they may just grin and bear it until they're able to roll out more worldwide as the years go on. Uh, Shelly G also writes, uh, very well could be a possibility. It makes sense with Sky already having uh, the Now TV platform. If I was HBO Max and Sky and Sky, it's what I would do. Thanks, GC. Best wishes for Christmas and a new year. Well, thank you so much for that, Shelly. And again, we'll have to see what kind of decisions they make with, like, how exclusive do they want HBO Max to be? How more open could they become with the content they want to get out to other platforms? And how patient are they going to be? A lack of patience may drive them to do other things. You never know. All right. Uh, Andy from Canada tips in $20. Thank you, Andy from Canada, who writes, the next Jedi to appear in the Mandalorian is likely Ezra or Cal. However, if it is Luke, just a radical idea. Why not cast a younger actor to play him? I love Hamill for what he's done for Luke, but it show uh, but this show presents an opportunity for a new portrayal. Well, I mean, that that has been something that's been suggested by a million people, Andy, at this point. Uh, most people saying they want Sebastian Stan. Why? Because he's the perfect actor for it? No, because they think he looks kind of like a younger Mark Hamill which is not the right reason to cast somebody. But at any rate, here's the problem. And Rob, I don't know what you think about this. The problem is this is in the same continuity as the existing movies. It's the same timeline. It is the same universe. It is the same everything. And one of the reasons I said this long before Solo ever came out, Long before the solo movie ever came out, I said, people are not going to be interested in seeing a different Han Solo when we just had Harrison Ford on screen as Han Solo. And sure enough, we weren't. And I think if you're going to have Luke, I don't know what Lucasfilm will do. I can tell you what I think they should do. If you're going to have Luke, it should be Mark Hamill. You just had him on screen as Luke to in the same universe, same timeline, to have him on screen for 10 minutes and and de-age him for 10 minutes, I think you do that. I don't think you go out and get a new actor. I, I just don't think that's the right way to go right now. But that's just me. I believe they tried it and it failed. I think that's the way they should do it. Not that I think they're going to use Luke at all. Rob, if they do decide to use Luke, what's the better avenue here to use? A, I think there's arguments to be made both ways, but to go with Mark Hamill himself or to recast a different actor to play a younger, a younger Luke for an episode or two. What do you think? Well, you know, I've seen comparisons with with Sebastian Stan. It is pretty compelling. Um, but I would look with the with the a technology that exists now. Why not use Mark Hamill? You know, why not try it? Um, 
if the if they can DH Michael Douglas in the MCU ten year almost ten years ago and make it convincing, why not try with the new technology to do use Mark Hamill? You know what it is? It's his voice too. Yeah. You know, it's 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 so much of a character that resonates with us is their voice. You can tell it's them. Uh, and I think that Luke having a different voice would be sort of odd. And look, I think it's a different. It would I would say something different if we were talking about. So Luke's going to show up and he's going to be in like eight episodes of Mandalorian next season. You know what? That might change things for me. But yeah. if we're talking about the standard Mandalorian thing where a guest star shows up for an episode, going to be on screen for like 10 minutes, you can do the de-aging thing for 10 minutes and make it believable. If it was going to be like eight episodes, that would become a very uh, labor-intensive and very expensive endeavor. Then maybe I could see recasting. I, then maybe I could see that. But for now, I, I think it's the Luke thing. All right. Great question, Andy. Thanks for writing that in, man. All right. Alan Horns. Alan Horns Horn writes. Hey, John, what do you think will happen to film premieres slash red carpets when uh, events which promote new films as streaming is likely now going to be the future? Will there be theaters left running for these specific purposes? Oh, yeah, I, I think there will still be premieres. Look, when some TV shows which don't run in theaters, a lot of TV shows will do a premiere party at a at a local they'll book out a local movie theater and do a premiere party even though their show is destined for television not for uh the big screen so will they be as normal and as regular as they have been historically no probably not because these big premiere parties cost a lot of money to put on but yeah i still think they'll be around i still think they'll do them to a degree all right Dwayne jackson writes hey john and family i was wondering are you following the current disaster situation that is happening at espn with all the reorganization uh let's what it is with all the reorganization let's what it is layoffs or firing uh, espn has been losing money is it time for disney to try sell espn no not in the least listen the only thing probably hit harder than the movie industry is the sports industry, particularly sports coverage. Like Rob, you and I have talked before on this show about while well, in the midst of the pandemic, now granted the NBA came back and had their bubble. The NFL is having games in empty stadiums, but for like five, six months, there's just no sports. Right. And I who watch like ESPN sports center, maybe twice a day. Normally I didn't watch ESPN for like four months. They had nothing to do. They were covering like chess tournaments for heaven's sakes. And you can't go through when you go through that sort of desert, quite often the effects of that are not going to be felt until later. The fact that they lost so much revenue and so much viewership and so much during that period of time. Yeah, they could keep going and make it look normal as possible. But you're going to see the effects of that a little bit later on. So quite frankly, I'm not surprised. I mean, they and they're still suffering from it, from what's going on in the sports world right now, because it's kind of it's different watching sports when it's empty stadiums and whatever. I'm still good with it on the UFC, but I'm not surprised. Rob, are you surprised at all to hear about ESPN's problems? No, because I mean, these are businesses. These are giant economic engines that both generate and 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 uh, consume cash and then these industries are just gone like in a day and all these people are standing around going what do we what do we do you know and we weren't prepared for that you know there was no i don't think many many people thought 
a pandemic was going to come and halt all worldwide sporting events. And it's a bummer, man. It's not like somebody it was not like there was financial malfeasance like in the subprime mortgage meltdown. This was something people just didn't expect. And it's not unexpected that ESPN's in a world of hurt right now. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it is not surprising at all. Um, okay, let's move on here. Uh, I'm trying to get some information on this, but let's get on to the next question here, which comes to us from Black Force. Writes with Mortal Kombat officially being released in January. Do you think there is enough time for a proper marketing campaign? Given that we haven't seen a single image from the movie yet, does this show lack of confidence in the movie? So here's the deal with that. So Mortal Kombat is going to follow the same pattern as all the other movies going uh, that are Warner Brothers movies. They're all going to HBO Max. They're all going to HBO Max. That changes the dynamic a lot. It changes the dynamic a lot. Because, Rob, you know you need a big marketing campaign to get people out of their houses, to plan a night out, go to the movie theaters, drop some money on tickets, and play. you got to build that campaign a lot. I don't think that's as important with something that's going to be streaming to your homes. Like, they still need to promote it. But do you need to start marketing, showing trailers for a t- basically essentially now is what is a television movie? This is going to be streaming on HBO Max. Do you have to have a three-month buildup campaign to it being released? Probably not. So I don't – now, look, you know I have my own pessimism about the new Mortal Kombat just because it is a first-time director and a first-time screenwriter. Uh, the, the, the director and the screener are both, this is both their first feature films. So it's, I'm a little bit nervous about it, but honestly, under a normal movie theatrical window, I would suggest that this might say they don't have a lot of confidence in the movie. Maybe, but honestly, right now, I, I think it's just a part of the chaos and confusion of this shift over to HBO max. So honestly, I don't think it says anything good or bad about what mortal Kombat might be. Rob, what do you think? Yeah, I don't think it. I don't think it 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 you should ever consider this as a judgment of something's quality. Um because I, I mean we're we're in a situation where the economic realities of all of this are defined by where we're at. It, it's all about business. It's not about quality, it's not it shouldn't be taken as anything other than they're trying to figure out a way to how how does everybody keep their business going during this pandemic? That's all that's all of what this is all about, because otherwise, what are they going to do? Sit on every single movie, sit on everything that's made and have make no money and everyone's going to go broke. They can't do that. Yeah. And and here's the other thing, too, Rob. Never think the marketing campaign shows confidence in a movie. If anything, the bigger and grander the marketing campaign, that might suggest that the studio knows their movie sucks and they need to make as much money on opening weekend as possible, right? So never think for a second that a late marketing campaign means something bad for the movie or an early marketing campaign means something good for the movie. I don't think that 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 applies at all. So uh, there's that as well. All right, next up, John. Yes. You always say that the movie going experience is better than anything you can get at home. I thousand percent uh, believe that. I was curious where you where you first viewing. You probably meant your I was curious where your first viewing of Wonder Woman will be also over under 25 million at the U.S. box office in the first 30 days. Uh, well, I have no choice. My first viewing of Wonder Woman 84 is going to be at home because the theaters are not open here. 
So that I mean, that just takes the decision out of my hands. I have no choice in the matter. I'm unless I want to drive five hours to some other state where they're going to be open. But quite frankly, uh, with with the spikes in the pandemic, even I, who did feel quite comfortable going to the movie theaters before with all the safety protocols, the the the. The pandemic right now is twice as bad as it was when I did that. There have been massive, massive spikes. So I don't know. So I wouldn't do that right now. So if all other things were equal and there was no pandemic and my theater, the AMC Burbank 16 up the street was open and I had a choice between watching Wonder Woman 84, you know, at home or going to a real theater and seeing it in a real movie experience the way Patty Jenkins intended the movie to be watched. Well, then that's easy. I'd be going to the movie theater. But since that's not an option available to me, uh, I have no choice. I'm going to have to be uh, watching it at home for my first experience. And I'm still excited about it. I'm still excited about it. Don't get me wrong. I still think the movie's going to be great and it'll be great at home. It just would have been better if I could see it in a theater. Uh, Justin writes, I just want want Deadpool 3 to have a montage of, Dead, of Deadpool frolicking around Disneyland. <laughs> that There's got to be, Rob, somehow, someway, however they end up doing Deadpool 3. Uh, which they are apparently in motion there. They, he has to be ruthless. He's got to be vicious with the, uh, with the Disney satire. Do, wouldn't you think like, does it, does, isn't it going to be a missed opportunity? If it's not like they, he's got to go after oh. Disney, doesn't he? Oh, uh, I mean, I, if, for that alone, I can't wait. The real question is, is Disney going to allow him to do that? But you know, what's interesting about Deadpool even though the satire is deep and cutting, there is something loving behind it, John. <laughs> it's not like he's going to go and and look at look at how Hugh Jackman has been handled, you know, or or anything else. I mean, it, it, the, he makes fun because he loves. <laughs> <laughs> he makes fun because he, I agree. I totally agree. <laughs> and I think that they, they get they get eviscerate Disney, and and completely make fun of it. But at the same time. Disney did make the MCU happen. They bought it from Paramount. They gave us Endgame and Infinity War. They're giving us WandaVision. They're giving us so many good things. So you can wantonly make fun of Disney. But I think Deadpool, even though it'll be cutting and hilarious, there's love there. There is love there. All right. One last question because we know Rob's got to go, but we'll get one more in here with Rob here. Dylan's Dialogue writes, Hey, John and Rob, just saw your documentary and it was very insightful and entertaining. Thank you so much for checking it out, Dylan. I appreciate that, man. I love seeing Rob in the movie Between Vibranium, Valerian Steel, Adamantium, and Beskar. What fictional metal comes out on top? Thanks. And bring on the stiffies. Hashtag Spike Lee. I've got a stiffy. The musical, of course. Um, oh, to me, that's easy. That, I mean, that to, that's no question there. Adamantium. Uh, I, I think I think that is a clear, easy uh, winner. Uh, it's definitely like Beskar is great, but Beskar clearly can get severely beat up. Um, but yes, yeah, adamantium. Rob, in this geek sphere fantasy battle, what's the medal that comes out on I top? I am with you 100%. I am with you 100%. I mean, Valerian Steel is great to make a sword out of, but would you want it lining your bones? I would <laughs> want adamantium every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Yeah, to, yes, to me, that's a, that's a no-brainer. Anyway, great question, though, Dylan's Dialogue. Thanks for bringing the geekness. But, Rob, speaking of bringing the geekness, thank you for being here uh, today, my friend. We know you got to go. But in the meantime, where can people follow you and your adventures online? 
Uh, you can find me on uh, Instagram at Robert Meyer Burnett or RM Burnett and find me on Twitter at Burnett RM. And of course, find me on my own YouTube channel, The Burnett Work, where there's a lot of movies that are being posted for the first Intergalactic Imagination Connoisseurs Film Festival. You people have done me proud with all the work that you've sent in. So thank you for that. All right, Rob, thanks a lot for being here, man. And we'll talk to you later, my friend. Have a good one. Yep. All right, guys, that is the one and the only, the great Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. Let's keep going, though. We still got some time here, so let's get through a bunch more of your questions. Next one up comes to us from Jesse, who writes, I nicknamed my first car after the Milano from Guardians of the Galaxy, which was, of course, named after the actress Alyssa Milano. Uh, Then Milano in the movies got destroyed, and shortly after, my car was crushed by a tree. (laughs) I nicknamed my new car after the Razor Crest, and now I'm getting kind of nervous. Man, that was my gasp moment in that one. I couldn't... I mean, at first... I couldn't believe they destroyed the Razor Crest. Like at first, I'm like, I can't believe it. it was my I gasped out loud, like the same way I gasped out loud when baby Yoda ate the egg. I like gasped out. Yeah. But when you thought about it, though, I mean, the Razor Crest had had the living crap kicked out of it. Right. The late Razor Crest at that point was being held together with duct tape and spit. Really? I mean, so. I guess it was time for it to go, but yeah, I was completely floored by that. I, I would keep a close eye on your car, though, man. Hopefully, the pattern doesn't follow through. All right. Uh, next up, Garden Variety Vagabond writes, one of four. Hey, John and team. For those looking for new slash old espionage excellence, try a history of espionage by watching spy shows from uh, spy shows by episode release date, starting with Danger Man, the 1960s, which had Ian Fleming as a collaborator before 007 hit the screen. Next, blend in the Avengers. I did try. I, I, I watched some old reruns of the Avengers when I was a kid from 1961. Uh, yep. Ian Fleming aided again. Then mix in the Saint 1962 starring Roger Moore, which later went on to have a big screen version of it with Val Kilmer. Uh, don't forget about that. Uh, Saint starring Roger Moore. In 1964, Danger Man was rescued from having been canceled as Secret Agent Man with the iconic intro music. Secret Agent Man. Next, America joins uh, in with The Man from Uncle, which again, by the way, was a fabulous movie adaptation with uh, Army Hammer and Henry Cavill. It's totally underrated. Go see that movie. It's so good. Uh, in 1964, followed by The Girl from Uncle in 1966. At the same time as getting a history in Spy TV, you will get a history of the transition from black and white to color filming. For extra awesomeness, watch the Sean Connery Bond films in your timeline as well. You will notice many Bond actors previously played roles in these iconic 1960s shows. Miss Moneypenny, Blofeld, MQ, Tracy Bond, uh, Pussy Galore, and many many more that is a great rundown there garden variety that is an excellent excellent rundown and like all of these shows obviously were before i was born and before my time but when i was younger i would watch a bunch of these uh, with the reruns and syndication i would watch a bunch of them when they would come on uh including i would see some man the two ones that i watched most uh, out of the ones that you've listed were man from uncle and the avengers which uh, they did with Sean Connery later on. Sean Connery did the Avengers movie because he lost a bet. Uh, true story. You should go look it up. It's pretty. I believe he lost a golfing bet, and so he agreed to be in the movie. Anyway, that is a great rundown. Well done and well researched. Look at it's. It's also our community members spreading out some good knowledge, goodness for all. That is great and a great uh, kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for. I'm, oh, what is the word you use in school? Curriculum. That's a great curriculum you just laid out for the old spy stuff. Well done, Garden Variety. All right, next up. Um, 
Neo Braveheart writes one of two. Now that Disney and Warner Brothers has driven the nail in the coffin for movie theaters, do you believe it will be a more favorable move for Amazon to buy AMC, create a movie studio under the AMC label, a recognizable brand, install Amazon automatic payment systems found in Amazon grocery stores, which you have said you like very much, and create exclusive movies that you can see in an AMC Amazon experience center or theater? The more things unfold, the more this idea seems like a good move. Listen, Neil Braveheart, I loved the idea before. Five months ago, I loved the idea of Amazon buying AMC. To me, for all the reasons you just beautifully articulated, there was just a beautiful synergy between Amazon, which was becoming more and more of an entertainment company as well, and AMC theaters, which really needed the financial buyout. And yeah, by the way, I love Amazon stores. Now, granted, full disclosure, half of my household income comes from Amazon because my wife is a senior person over at Amazon. So just full disclosure there. Um, but I, I love the Amazon stores. Like Amazon just launched a couple of grocery stores in L.A., and they have this thing that is so great. They have these smart carts, like grocery carts, right? But they're covered, the edges are covered with these cameras and sensors. So what happens is I go in, I get my smart cart, and it's got a screen on the front, and I scan my Amazon code on it. So now it knows, okay, it's John Campy has got this thing. And then I go through the grocery store, and whenever I drop something in the grocery cart, the cart scans what is being dropped in. So it keeps a running list on the screen of all the things I've got in my cart. And then when I'm done, I just roll the cart through this line. I just walk through this, this, uh, this aisle with it and it knows to check me out automatically. And it charges my Amazon account for all the stuff that I have in my, in my grocery cart. Then I just pick up everything in a bag and walk out. I don't have to do a checkout line. I don't have to do anything. It just does it all automatically. I love the idea of being able to go to an Amazon owned AMC theater and just scan my Amazon account as I walk in and tell it what movie I'm there to see. And it charges me what I need, what I, what I want. And then just use the same app to like, Hey, I, I picked up a, a soda and a popcorn. It just automatically knows. And it just charges my Amazon account. Super convenient. Boom, boom, boom. All the finances involved with Amazon adding the name. The problem is we're not in the same world we were five months ago. The problem is now the theater industry is in real trouble. Amazon can own a theater, but what content will they have to show? You can't just show your own content. That's not going to generate. You're not going to be able. It's not financially viable to operate these giant temples of movies on the revenue you'll get just from people coming to see the Amazon produced content. You got to have content from Disney and Warner Brothers and Sony and Universal and all that kind of stuff. And that content just isn't going to be there. So while I loved the idea passionately before, it's just something I don't think would work now, unfortunately. But who knows, man? I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Okay, next up, uh, Hot Quality Content writes, Filmmakers won't be incentivized to push boundaries of what we see on screen anymore. IMAX, 8K, super high frame rates like the Avatar sequels, um, useless post-COVID. I mean, hell, what's stopping studios from saving a buck and shooting everything on an iPhone? Listen, that has been my biggest concern about the transition to the streaming medium has been... Look at Disney Plus right now. 
They got 73 million subscribers with zero premium new content. They did episode season one of Mandalorian and they put out Hamilton. That's it. As far as premium original content goes, there's a lot of filler content, but as far as premium original content goes, that's it. And they still got 73 million subscribers. What that tells me and what makes me a little bit nervous is that once they get all these subscribers, they'll just go, eh, we can cut back. We don't have to put all that much money into what we're making. We don't have to worry too much. Just as long as two or three times a year, we put out something great. We don't have to do like we did in 2019, where we put out like $8 billion making movies. We don't have to do that anymore. We can skimp. We can cheap out. We don't have to put as much energy and effort into it as we did before. I'm not saying that's what will happen. I'm just saying that's what I'm a little bit nervous of happening. Because look at Netflix, man. Like, yeah, every once in a while, they'll put out a trial of the Chicago 7, which is my favorite movie of the year, by the way, or an Irishman. But 95% of the stuff they churn out as far as original movies go are like bottom of the barrel, low budget drivel. And that's my worry. I do worry about that a little bit. I'm not saying this is what will happen, hot quality content, but that is what I worry about just a little bit. All right. Charlie Uptown writes, what's up, John and Rob? Rob's not here anymore, unfortunately. With all the Mace uh, Windu talk lately, I was wondering uh, the validity of this rumor I've heard for years, even floating around on Instagram. Was George Lucas actually interested in meeting Tupac for the role of Mace Windu back in 1996? No idea. I've heard that rumor too. I've never seen anything that substantiates that. Uh, it's a rumor that's been around. Maybe it's true. Maybe it wasn't. I'm just saying myself, I've never actually seen any actual credible evidence to suggest that's true. I'm not saying it wasn't. I'm just saying I've never seen any credible evidence to suggest it's true. Wouldn't that have been interesting though? Wouldn't that have been interesting? Thanks for sending that in, Charlie. Vintage Toys Warehouse writes, Hi. With the success of Baby Yoda, would you want to move into the toy space? With just a couple of adjustments per unit, baseball hats, etc., we could do it. It's not too late to flood the holiday market with 53,000 Campy Apache dolls for Christmas. Yeah, for whatever reason, call me pessimistic. I don't see millions of children across America wanting to snuggle into bed with a John Campy plushie beside them. That's the stuff of nightmares. I mean, if you want your kids to have therapy later, maybe that's the thing to do and give it kind of like weird, mean looking eyes. It's just always staring at them. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that's the billion dollar idea of vintage toys. I don't think that'll be the billion dollar idea. Now you're all going to go to sleep with the vision of a plushy John Campia looking at you like that. Admit it. You are. All right. Michael Roberts writes. Do you think there's a chance Boba Fett is the source Moff Gideon had put the tracker on Mando's ship? Uh, maybe that's how uh, Boba found Mando and Baby Yoda. We don't call him a Grogu on the John Campus show. At the uh, Jedi Temple, he and Jango both worked for the Empire before. Uh, no. Uh, no. They already made it clear in the show that that mechanic... That alien mechanic is the one that put the tracker on 
the Razor Crest. Uh, it was not Boba Fett. It was they made it very very clear because even on a Moff Gideon's ship, that Imperial officer was talking to that same alien who was confirming that yep they put the tracker on and he still has the asset right. So no, it was not Boba Fett. It was that alien mechanic. I mean they could always twist it a little bit later if they wanted to. They could always twist it a bit, but. They made it pretty clear that that was the case. So I don't expect so, Michael. Good question, though. James Argenta writes, uh, looks like Mando is setting up a seven samurai finale with Din, Cara Dune, Boba Fett, Fennec, Mayfield, Grief, Bo, and crew meet during the mission, and Appa and Filoni in their X-Wings. I also think there is a 10% chance we could see Jedi answers Grogu's call and helps them. Oh, listen. Grogu sent out this massive signal. Right. Baby Yoda sent out on that little rock, uh, sent out the massive blue light special into the universe. Right. Somebody's answering that call. Somebody's answering that call before this past week's episode. I thought there was a chance nobody shows up. I don't think that's I don't think that's on the table anymore. Somebody is showing up who I'm not sure yet, but somebody is showing up. And how many of those will be there? Will Grief be there? I don't know. Will Bo-Katan show up? I don't know. But I do think there's going to be some kind of posse. Mando's going around putting together a posse, and we're going to see something. Maybe not in this next episode, but definitely by the last episode. How many, who, which ones, does a Jedi show up? And which Jedi shows up? I still have a, I'll put a dollar on it being Ezra. Uh, but maybe Cal, some people think Mace Windu, maybe it'll be one of the force ghosts. Who knows? We'll have to wait and see. All right. James Argento also writes, who would you put your money on to die in Mando finale? Uh, Cara Dune, Grief, Boba, Fennec again, Bo-Katan, members of Bo's crew. I can't see them killing Bo-Katan. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't see them killing Bo-Katan. There's just too much there that you can still do with that. Honestly, I think Cara Dune or Carl Weathers' Grief character. I, I think... Probably more grief, but I think Cara Dune is because Cara Dune is also a character we've gotten more invested in, and that would make her death more impactful narratively, and that's why I actually think there's maybe a not Fennec, eh, maybe, but that won't do anything. She was a one-episode thing. She's already died once. Now she's back. Wouldn't have that big of an impact, but Cara Dune, that would have a big emotional impact, so I would put it on either her or Carl Weathers, either Gina Carano or Carl Weathers. That's where I would put my, but I'm not certain of that. I'm just, I'm just guessing out loud. All right. Caleb writes, just saw Mank. I watched Mank as well the other day. Uh, holy shit. That was incredible. Old man is, old man is fantastic. And I didn't know, uh, Seafried had that in her. All the technical stuff was out of this world, especially the production design cinematography. Did you see it? What did you think of it? I really liked Mank. I did. I was not, as blown away by it by as some other people are, but it was really good. And Gary Oldman is incredible in it. And um, also Charles dance. Is that the dude's name? Who was the, uh, the patriarch Manister, uh, uh, Lannister in game of Thrones. Charles dance is always great. Even in that Godzilla movie last year, Charles dance is always great. It was, and the Orson Welles character was fantastic. It's not just that they said it in that time period. They made the movie as if it was a movie being made in that time period. You know what I'm saying? It's really good. 
Did it replace the Chicago seven as my favorite movie of the year? No, but it's really good. If you have not seen Mank yet, I do highly suggest it. Take Caleb's suggestion there and go check it out. All right. Black Forest writes, sorry, didn't realize that they pulled Mortal Kombat's release date for January. Hard to keep track of release dates these days. Got to say it's refreshing to know that Warner Brothers 2021 slate is pretty much set in stone and we can look forward to movies again. I get, I just can't see. It may still be coming out in January. I just can't see. I'm looking at an article right now saying it's going to be released. Uh, uh, it's going. Oh, you know what? Don't look for that. Look for January. Okay. So Mortal Kombat reboot film is currently scheduled to release on January 15th on both HBO Max and in theater. So apparently it is going to be January. Uh, it is going to be January 15th. So that's at least that's the latest information I have. So whether or not that's absolutely true, I'm not sure, but I, it sounds like it's going to be January 15th, HBO max and whatever theaters are open around you. Obviously there's none open around me. So it's going to be HBO max for me. All right. No problem. Black, uh, black forest. Ryan loner writes Mando, by the way, you might want to get that jetpack checked one little tap and it just goes off Boba. Yes, I'm aware. Again, it just makes Seeing Boba Fett in this latest episode of Mandalorian and how bad he is truly the John Wick of the Star Wars universe. It really does emphasize, again, the fluky random nature of what happened to him in Return of the Jedi. I mean, they always did portray it as a fluke, right? Not to be confused with Luke. It They always portrayed it. What happened to Boba Fett in Return of the Jedi was always portrayed as a giant fluke. But now that we've seen him in action, in Mandalorian, it really emphasizes the fluky nature of that. All right. Alan Horns Horn writes, hey, John, if streaming is indeed the future, will studios care as much about how they rate their films since catering to a younger demographic won't affect box office performance anymore? Example, releasing an R-rated Batman. The thing about an R-rated Batman is that there shouldn't be an R-rated Batman because there's nothing about Batman that's R-rated. I mean, nothing has ever been R-rated about Batman, really. So... Other than just people going, I want to see boobies. I mean, there's just no point for a thing. But to your point, I think it will start to blur the line. Like, unless you're a Disney, HBO doesn't care about what is right. I mean, they'll still put ratings, you know, whether it's for mature audiences, whatever. They'll put up those notifications before something starts on HBO Max just to be responsible to their consumers. But I think the importance of making sure something is PG-13 as opposed to rated R, that won't be make a difference anymore. For the most part. For the most part, it won't. So I think you're absolutely onto the right track there, Alan. I, I think you're absolutely right. We really will be less important. Because listen, HBO Max, HBO, let alone HBO Max, doesn't care what their content is rated. They just make it the way they want to make it. And if it's friendly for the whole family, they just say at the beginning of it, this is friendly for the whole family. If it's not, they tell you what what's what you can expect. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's going to matter less and less. Uh, all right. Next up, Eric Lynch writes, hey, John and Rob. Rob's not here right now. Uh, this is the game of. This is the game of the streaming thrones. Uh, Baratheons are Apple TV. The Lannisters are Netflix. Actually, that's the Lannisters are Netflix in this. You're absolutely right. Uh, HBO are the Targaryens. The Tyrells are Amazon Prime. Disney Plus are the Starks. Peacock are the Greyjoys. Hulu are the Martells. CBS are the Boltons. You know, it really is. You know what? Somebody needs to make that into a poster. 
Somebody needs to take this this uh, premise you just set up there, Eric. By the way, I think that's great. Somebody needs to take this premise that Eric just gave us and make that into an actual poster. Now, I asked some people out there to make me a poster of Batman El Sarah Saral or whoever, however I said it. And a bunch of you guys sent me some posters and I love them. Somebody's got to make this poster. The game of streaming thrones with all these families represented by the streaming platforms. Well done, Eric. Well done. Uh, Eric also writes, uh, I know this is probably the wrong question to ask, but do you think the Grammys should happen in 2021? The Grammys have released their nominations for 2021. There has been a lot of good music this year, but should the show move to 2022? Honestly, the difference between the Grammys, though, and the Oscars is the fact that the movies seriously had a major limitation in how much movies, how many movies could actually come out this year. That's why I don't think they should have the Oscars this year. It looks like they will do the Oscars. I really don't think they should. I think it's asinine to do the Oscars this year. They definitely should not be doing the Oscars with a live studio audience. That's just mixed messaging. That's just being tone deaf. That is just utterly ridiculous and stupid that they're doing it. The Emmys did a really good, and I'm not a big Emmys guy. But the Emmys did a fabulous job of doing a remote Emmys awards, right? They did a lot of it over Zoom. They had a couple people in a studio, but then everybody else was accepting via Zoom. It was done really well, all things considered, all things considered. The Grammys, there was nothing interrupting the music industry this year. So all the music came out. I don't think they should do a live and in-person show, but I don't see any reason why they still can't have the event. Just do it, you know, remotely, just like the Emmys did for a year. Next year, you won't have to do that. We'll have the vaccine. We'll be fine. But for this year, just do it remotely. Just don't be tone deaf like the Oscars and try to do it with a live studio audience. That's that's my my take on that at any rate. Thanks for bringing that in, Eric. All right. Eric also writes, uh, this is my first question. I have been a silent listener since 2017. Well, thanks for being around for that long, Eric. Do you think movie studios will involve uh, in the future like tech has? Will involve? Do you mean evolve? For example, I could only dream movie theaters having VR in the theaters that you put on. No, I don't see that. Somebody else wrote in and asked me about that this weekend about, you know, is VR headset theaters the way of the future? I don't think so. Um, I don't see, I really don't think so. Why would I go to a movie theater and then isolate myself from everybody else there? Like the reason I love going to the movie theaters for that magic of being in that room with like physically there with all these people. Um, I don't see why I would bother going to the movies. If the first thing I'm going to do is slap on something that isolates me from everybody that takes away part of the reason you go to the theaters, right? So no, I don't. I don't see that being a part of the solution, Eric, to be honest with you. I, yeah, I just don't see it. And by the way, I'm one of these VR headset pessimists. Don't get me wrong. Like I own an Oculus Quest. I really like my Oculus Quest. The, but I don't think VR is going to be this the massive, huge thing. I think if VR was going to be the next massive, huge thing, it would have done it already. You know, like they say in social network, if you could have invented Facebook, you would have invented Facebook. Uh, if VR headset stuff was going to be the next big, huge thing, it would have done it already because they've been working on it for years. And don't get me wrong. I think there's a place for VR and stuff like that. I have an Oculus Quest and I quite enjoy it, but I don't see myself watching movies wearing it on my head. But that's just me. Maybe, I mean, who knows? Dove the people could feel differently. What do you guys think about that? 
Do you think the idea of watching a movie with a headset on is is a is a fun idea? Maybe you do. Let me know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm in the minority on this one. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time. Chris writes. Uh, hey, John, love all that you do. Thank you so much, Chris. I just started watching The Queen's Gambit, and it's incredible. I really wish we would have gotten to see Heath Ledger's take on it, but I'm glad it got adapted regardless and a good adaptation, too. Thanks and have a good one. Yeah, so a lot of people don't realize, and I only found out about this myself recently, was that before Heath Ledger died, a movie version of Queen's Gambit was going to be his directorial debut. Uh, Heath Ledger was going to direct Queen's Gambit as a movie, not as a series. I think we probably ended up with something better. But yeah, it would have been, I mean, look, there's so much stuff I would have loved to have seen Heath Ledger do um, that we never got to see him do which only adds to the tragedy of it. But yeah, his take as, as a director, and I don't know, maybe he would have been the worst director in the world. Maybe he would have been the best director in the world. Who knows? But it would have been interesting to be able to jump into a different reality and see what Heath Ledger's Queen's Gambit would have looked like. Interesting take on that, Chris. All right. Only got time for a couple more here, guys. Carter writes, I know this sounds weird, but for me, it's not even the actual experience of being in a movie theater I'll necessarily miss the most. It's the feeling of excitement that that blankets the whole day from the moment I wake up to knowing I get to go see a movie tonight. Listen, Carter, I've been saying that forever, right? To me, I've said this for years. Every day that I wake up, that I know I'm going to a movie theater later that day is just a good day. I wake up with a smile on my face. I just, I'm in a better mood all day, every day that I would wake up knowing at some point today, whether it was a press screening or going out with my friends to a movie tonight, or just me and Anne having a date night or whatever, every day that I would wake up knowing I'm going to the movies that day, just made it a better day. So I, I'm with you on that. I totally feel on that Carter, cause I'm in the exact same boat as you. All right. The Wakandan forever writes one of two. It has officially been a year since I started watching and supporting the show. Oh, Really? Good to know. It feels like you've been around forever, man. Uh, writes, um, I have to thank you and the community for being there for me. It has been a really hard year, especially with the passing of uh, Chadwick Boseman, King T'Challa. It really affected... Uh, it really affected me. I must confess to my everlasting shame. I even considered changing my online name as the Wakandan after his passing. Uh, it hurts so much. No matter how bad the days go, your show for two hours gives me something to look forward to. Thank you. Oh, man. Thank you so much for that Wakanda forever. And you know, it's... It's one of the great things about the film fan community in general, right? I've talked about this all the time, but movies and the fan community that surrounds it are so important and they're so vital. Like even in the midst of all the crap to be able to get together with other film fans and just talk about and speculate about and cheer about movies or to watch a movie or something like that. It's just that oasis that we really need sometimes. And we as a species are storytellers and, and we get to celebrate those stories. And anyway, it's just as much because of the community that surrounds the show as it is, you know, Rob and I or Aaron and, and Ray putting on the show. So thank you so much for that, Wakanda Forever, for your kind words. And we're glad that you're a part of our community. All right. Last one up, guys. Anonymous writes. John, what do you think of the Brie Larson and talks for Hobbs and Shaw too? It's a bullshit rumor. Don't listen to it. Uh, I heard this and it's in a few articles. To be honest, if it's true, I would actually be hyped for Hobbs and Shaw too. Listen, Brie actress is an, Brie actress. Brie Larson is an Academy Award winning actress. Obviously, if you add her to something like Hobbs and Shaw, it's going to be great. It would be great. 
However, the report is bullshit. From what, unless I'm incorrect, from what I can tell, the story came from you guys know we got this covered.com, which is the ultimate bullshit site out there. So, because of that, unless it came from somewhere else and we got this covered, just we got this covered also just repeated what they heard from another site. But from what I can tell, the story story originated from wegotthiscovered.com, which is a complete bullshit site. So just ignore it. Yeah. Pay no attention to it. But in theory, had it been real, it'd be something I would really look forward to. So that would just be me. All right, guys, listen, there are still more questions we didn't get to here from Matthew Denton, uh, Chego Minion, uh, Thomas 97, and a few others. Do not worry, guys. We are going to start off tomorrow's live questions part of the show by starting with yours. These ones we didn't don't have time to get to right now. We will start off with yours. Don't worry. You sent them in and supported the show. Your questions are going to get answered in a proper video. So just make sure you tune in tomorrow and check that out. And guys, that'll do it. For today's installment of the John Campia Show, thank you so much for being here. Thank you to Robert Meyer Burnett for bringing his grace and glory to the show. Thank you all to all of you guys for making this show a part of your day. And a special thank you to all of you guys who sent in those live questions. Because number one, you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported this show as you did it. And all of us here, thank you very, very much for that. Don't forget, guys, we're going to be back again for another installment tomorrow. Please come back and join us then. That'll do it for me for now, guys. Thanks a lot for being here. Do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of the people around you. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.